Sunday morning. But today we're doing our last study in Mark, Mark chapter 16. And I want to just give a word of, I don't want to scare you, but maybe warning or just a heads up that things are going to be a little bit different, at least at the start of this sermon. And you'll see pretty quickly why this is going to be, but I just want to warn you that for what we're going to get into here in in the um, last chapter of Mark, we're going to have to get into the weeds a little bit. I'm going to do my best to keep things as clear as I can uh, and help you think, and I just encourage you um, to engage mentally. I think that if you make the effort from the start, you'll be able to track along. Um, If you don't, you might get lost, and I don't want to lose anybody. So I just want to give a heads up that the first part right here is going to take just a little bit more mental juice than sometimes. But I want to show you what I mean. Before we read the passage, I want to point your attention to the end of verse 8. End of verse 8, in between verses 8 and 9, many of your Bibles have some sort of special statement in brackets. Might look something like this. In ESV, statement says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Depending on what translation you're using, it might say um, something about some of the earliest ancient sources or even other ancient, it might reference even some of the other reasons for um, thinking that maybe these things were not originally included in the book of Mark. What that statement means is that there is compelling reason to think that verse 8 is supposed to be the last verse in the gospel according to Mark. There's compelling reason to think that verse 8 is supposed to be the end of the gospel, which means that verses 9 through 20 were not written by Mark and should not have been included. They were probably added by a different writer many years after Mark finished writing his gospel account. So I'm going to try to explain what's going on here, but first, let's read the first eight verses. As I read it, and especially as I read the last verse, I want you to be trying to, try to anticipate, try to think in your mind why somebody might have wanted to add a different conclusion onto the end of this gospel account. So Mark 16, we're just reading the first eight verses right now. Mark 16, passage picks up immediately after Christ's horrific crucifixion and burial that we studied last week in chapter 15. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and a woman named Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And that's the end of the gospel according to Mark. Many people feel like verse 8 is an unnatural conclusion. 
It seems a little bit weird that Mark would end his gospel account this way. It feels a little bit abrupt, and it seems just a little bit unexpectedly negative. These ladies discover that Jesus is gone from the tomb. This angel tells them to go give a message to the other disciples, and Mark simply says that they run away, scared out of their minds, and they don't say anything to anyone. Stop. That's, that seems to be how the gospel account ends. Now, the thing is, we know that's not the end of the story. So you look, the angels tells the, tell these ladies, go tell the disciples. And the, and the next verse says, they're so scared, they're so afraid, they're so scared of their minds, they don't tell anyone. But we know that's not the end of the story because Luke 24 makes clear that the women did eventually tell the disciples. So the question is, why doesn't Mark mention that? Why, doesn't he, why does he end here? Those are questions that people have been asking about this passage for a long time. Bible scholar Rick Watts remarks that this ending has left readers unsatisfied from the earliest times. And yet he says that scholars today almost universally agree that this section is a later attempt, perhaps by a second century scribe, to give a more satisfying conclusion to the gospel account. In other words, somebody else within a hundred years of Mark writing this, was equally kind of thrown off, but like this just kind of seems strange, doesn't seem like it wraps things up like it's supposed to, and in a, we're hoping the best about the person, in an effort to help things, kind of provides a summary, and this is within the first hundred years, and so it gets a lot of traction, and all of a sudden this question is introduced. Was this original? Was it not? Should we consider the scripture? Should we not? So let's talk about this for a second. And again, this is where I told you that we're going to have to get into the weeds a little bit because uh, some of you have a lot of experience thinking about these things, and some of you have never, never noticed anything like this in your Bible right now, and you're really freaked out. So what I have as my responsibility is to try to catch everybody up to basically a base level of understanding so we just think generally um, on the same level about this topic. And so I'm going to introduce you to a topic called textual criticism. And that sounds scary. It's, it is a little bit scary, but it's not too scary. So the first thing I want to point out on that, these are just things that you're going to need to know if you want to make sense of what's happening here in this section. First thing that you need to realize is that the New Testament was originally written in ancient Greek. That might be a surprise that Jesus and his disciples were not going around speaking English. Even though they mostly spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, Greek was the international language of the time, thanks to the conquests of Alexander the Great. Our Bibles were translated directly from ancient Greek into modern-day English. This is the first thing that's just helpful for you just to know if you didn't already know it. Number two, none of the original biblical documents still exist, as far as we know. In other words, nobody knows what happened to Mark's original document he hand-wrote. It's been lost to history. Number three, we do have a staggering collection of ancient handwritten copies. What we do have is an astonishingly large collection of handwritten copies of the original. Across the world, scholars have preserved nearly 6,000 handwritten Greek manuscripts, as well as over 20,000, over 20,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament in other languages. So just this was originally written in Greek, trans, um, just copied from the original Greek into um, just a plain copy. We have over, 
We have nearly 6,000 copies like that. And then when it was copied and then it was translated in other languages like Coptic and Latin, a few other languages, we have over 20,000 handwritten copies in other languages. Number four, the manuscripts are not identical to each other and the differences are called variants. Vast majority of these variants are utterly insignificant and honestly very, very boring to study unless you really enjoy grammar and spelling and things like that. Most of the differences between the manuscripts, the, the, the vast majority of them are really insignificant. It's a spelling error. That's why this is different than that one because this scribe made a mistake, this little tiny mistake. It's a small spelling issue. It's a small punctuation, not punctuation, but a small gr a grammatical issue. So most of the variants, most of the differences, they're very insignificant. Of the other ones that are more significant, that actually does kind of determine the meaning, the vast majority of those are normally easily resolved by applying just simple tests of common sense and logic. Uh, there's different patterns of mistakes that a scribe who's copying might make in the same way that if you're writing an email, you might, you're copying something, you might skip a line or you might accidentally repeat a phrase. Those things are pretty obvious to figure out. Um, it's pretty easy to determine what happened um, in this instance. And so none of the variants um, of, of those categories, most of them are insignificant. They're just spelling issues. The ones that are more significant it's easy if you just do some careful analysis to figure out what went wrong and identify what the right one is. And of all the variants, all the differences among all these manuscripts, none of them affect biblical doctrine. Not a single one of them is significant enough to call into question any of the Bible's teaching. There's a scholar, Michael Kruger, writes that a single textual variant cannot negate important biblical doctrines because such doctrines are not based on single biblical phrases or sentences in the first place. Doctrines arise out of the whole testimony of Scripture to a specific issue. So if, if this is news to you, that the Bible that you're holding right now was translated not from the original document but from copies of that, be encouraged that of all the teaching, everything that we would say you need to know and believe, not a single one of those things is called into any question by any of the differences among the manuscripts, among any of the variants. And then number five, many Christian scholars have devoted their lives to carefully studying these copies. This type of work is called textual criticism. Textual criticism is a specialized field of theological study that's interested in comparing, analyzing, and documenting the vast body of ancient manuscripts in order to determine with the highest degree of confidence the original text of Scripture. These are people that like books. They don't mind dust, and it's okay if they don't see sunlight a whole lot. That's a general statement, but it's generally true. These are people that they love getting into this, and they have devoted their lives to studying it, and we benefit from it. Greg Gilbert writes, Christian scholars have been exceedingly careful to document in actual books that you can buy if you're willing to shell out the money, the most significant variants along with an analysis of each one. Of course, you're free to disagree with any of their conclusions. Christians have fun arguing about this kind of thing all the time, believe it or not. But the point is that, again, there's no conspiracy to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Where variants need to be reckoned with, Christians are wide open about them. And then the last thing, just to kind of lay a foundation for understanding this issue, 
Major differences like this one in Mark 16 are exceedingly rare. This situation that we have right here where we as a church are deliberating over 12 verses and we're asking, is this part of the Bible? Is this not part of the Bible? This type of situation is exceedingly rare. There's only one other place in the Bible like it, and it's in the Gospel according to John. It's in between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, if you're interested, um, Joe taught on this uh, recently, and I can send you his notes from when he taught through that other passage. Uh, I'm trying not to hold this against him, but I thought that explaining his passage was a lot easier than explaining this passage. But you can see his notes if you're interested. <clears throat> so that raises the question then. What about these 12 verses, 16, 9 through 20? I'll sometimes refer to this as the longer ending. Is it original to Mark? How do we know if this should be included or not? How do we know that if we should treat this as Bible, as Christians, do we come to this section right here and treat it with the authority and the reverence? And do we study it and preach it and teach it and obey it and apply it to our lives in the same way that we do the rest of the Bible? That's the question that we have to answer before we're even ready to study whatever it is we think that we should study. So what about this? Is it original? Should it be included or not? I want to start off by saying that there are some plausible arguments why it should be included in the Bible and should be considered scripture. And many Christians throughout church history have made that assumption. Um, These arguments do not ultimately convince me But in my study, I found four good reasons. They're good reasons why you might conclude that Mark wrote these verses. So I'm going to start off by sharing four reasons. I think they're good reasons. They don't ultimately convince me, but they are good reasons why you might come to the conclusion that this was original. Evidence for accepting it as original. Number one, Mark 16.8, it does seem like an awkward conclusion. Like I already mentioned, it does seem odd how Mark ends. It seems plausible that Mark might have intended for his gospel account to end differently. Number two, the content of this passage, 16, chapter 16, 9 through 20, it's true and consistent with the rest of Scripture. There's nothing in these 12 verses that contradicts anything else in the Bible. In fact, almost every detail in this section already exists somewhere else in the Bible. There's actually a sense in which if we take it away, we don't lose anything. And if we keep it there, we don't gain anything. Most study Bibles actually include cross-references that show where to find these details elsewhere in the New Testament. And by the way, I didn't actually include this as an official reason, but I feel like it could kind of be a sub-point under this. I also want to point that some of you might be tempted to look at this longer section and think that it's original because it looks original. It's printed in your Bible. It has chapter numbers and verse numbers. Greg, who are you to say that Mark 1615 is not part of the Bible? I can look it up chapter and verse. And if you're thinking that, I need to let you know, if you didn't know, that chapter and verse numbers weren't added to the Bible until about a thousand years after it was written. So it makes it confusing because it makes it look super official, but don't be deceived just by the chapter number, the verse number. That was added afterwards, and it might have been added to something that wasn't actually original. Uh, Mark, just to be super clear, when Mark wrote this gospel account, he did not write numbers, um, big numbers for chapter numbers and little numbers for verse numbers. He didn't do that. Those were all numbers that were put there to help us, but a thousand years later. Third reason, some of the earliest church leaders quoted these extra verses. 
This is a good reason why you should at least weigh this as a possibility. While there is question about whether Mark wrote this longer ending, there's no question this passage has been around a really long time. It is ancient. It was quoted by some leaders in the second century. So within 100, 150 years of when Mark really wrote it, this was written and people were no, knew about it and were talking about it. It is ancient. It was quoted by leaders such as Irenaeus, um, Tatian, Justin Martyr. They're, they're um, three guys in the second century. Passage has definitely been floating around for almost 2,000 years. It was certainly written within about 100 years of Mark's original. Fourth reason, the vast majority of manuscripts include these extra verses. You heard the numbers I dropped earlier about just how many manuscripts we have to make comparative analysis of. Most of them include this passage. And this is by far the strongest argument for accepting this as scripture and treating it as such. The reality is that more than 99% of the copies of Mark's gospel contain verses 9 through 20. More than 99% of the copies of Mark's gospel contain these verses. That's pretty compelling. And yet, I'm still not completely convinced. I've got five reasons that I think form a better argument on why we should not actually think that this was original to Mark's writing. And I, I'll say this several times this morning. You don't have to agree with me on this. This is something that Christians have been talking about for, well, ever since it, was, it became a thing. <laughs> so about 2,000 years. Um, so you don't have to agree with me. But again, as I studied, I, I was like, I'm, these are pretty persuasive arguments, but I think this is a stronger argument on the whole. So evidence against um, accepting it as original. Number one, the earliest and the best manuscripts we have do not contain these extra verses. And it's really just two really high-quality manuscripts that we have, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Both of these are the earliest complete New Testament manuscripts that we have. The copyists who made them, it is almost unthinkable that they didn't know about this other passage. It was prevalent enough with church fathers talking about it that they should have at least had it on their radar. So it's, it's pretty significant that they made the decision not to include it. For our purposes, I think it might be helpful to think of the game telephone. Picture 20 people lined up. And if that's hard for you to do, I put it on the screen to make it easier. First person, person in red, has a message that he hands onto the next person. And that person then accurately relays it onto the next person. That person accurately relays it onto the next person and so on. Well, what happens if, say, the sixth person decides to improve the message, wants to clarify a little bit, and adds a little something? Well, that person then adds it onto the, gives it to the next person, and that person, trying to be faithful to what he received, then passes that same thing with the addition onto the next person, and so on down the line. By the time you get to the end, the vast majority of people are all saying that extra message. And I think that help, might help you visualize why the vast majority of manuscripts include it, but it seems like it's a game of telephone in which this was introduced and then all of a sudden it kept on being copied and so the bulk of them include it, but in order to determine what was actually accurate, you actually need to go back um, to the very beginning of the line. Now, in our, our situation, we don't know exactly, we have one, we're playing with more than 20 characters, 
but we don't know exactly how close we can get, but the closest we can get, it's probably not like the very first copy, we don't know. We get as close as we can, and we try to go as early in the timeline as possible to make an evaluation on whether or not um, this was original or not. And when you do that, the two best, highest quality ones we have, the earliest ones, they made a decision not to include it. Another reason, we'll come back to that in a second, but another reason is that some of the other earliest church leaders, they never acknowledged these extra verses. There were other church leaders in the second century, same time period as the ones who did acknowledge it. They should have known about them. Um, they seemingly did not, or at least they did not mention them. There's a guy named Origen, Clement of Alexandria. Um, those were both second century, again, within about 100 years of it originally being written. But then we know of later Christian leaders, such as a guy named Jerome and Eusebius. Um, this is third century, so this is about 100 years after that, who explicitly taught that these verses were inaccurate. In fact, um, there was, uh, Jerome actually records some history by this guy named Eusebius, in which Eusebius is asked about one of these verses in Mark 16, and the response, the pastoral response that he gives is, this is not scripture. So within a, a couple hundred years, we have this leading authoritative historian saying this is not to be considered as scripture. Um, so though that is a reason why you might consider it, that there's church leaders who did refer to it, there's also some strong reasons on the church history side to think that maybe there was a conversation going on and some of them knew that it was not true. Number three, the passage seems, verse, verses 9 through 20, it seems to be written in a different style than the rest of the book. Many Bible scholars point out that there's a different vocabulary that's being used here. Um, there's a distinct writing style. It just doesn't sound like Mark when you compare the writing style. It seems to suggest a different author. Um, there's many little details. It's beyond what we have time for us to... It's, it's more into the weeds than we can go with this morning. But there's a lot more details internal to the text that seem like it lacks continuity with what comes before in the rest of Mark's account. I give one example there's a description of Mary Magdalene, and there's the statement that says that she's the one that had this number of demons cast out of her. It's odd that that would be mentioned then, because it's not a detail that is necessary for what this passage is talking about. And Mary Magdalene has already been introduced several times earlier in Mark. You would think if this is an identifying detail, it would have been included earlier, not at the very end, when it's not serving any purpose. There's a lot of details like that internal to the text, it just seems, it doesn't seem like it flows. It doesn't seem like this is somebody who's writing and then flows into this. It looks like somebody that's adding it on and not thinking how everything connects with what came before. Number four, some of the very Greek manuscripts that do contain the passage also contain notes suggesting the section is not authentic. Remember I told you the vast majority of them do include it? Well, some of the ones that include it, they also include a note that says, this, this was not original. So if you go back to the telephone game again, you've got the ones at the very beginning, the earliest, as far back as you can go, they're saying this is, this is not included. But then of the people that did include it, they're actually including notation saying they're recognizing this, this is separate from everything else that we're talking about here. So when you compile all of these reasons... It seems like there's good reason to think that this was not actually written by Mark and should therefore not be studied, obeyed, preached, and taught in the same way as the rest of the scripture. That's my conclusion. You are welcome to disagree with me. 
If you want to discuss any of these things further, I'm glad to. If you're a bit shaken or thrown off by any of these things um, and you're left wondering, can I trust the Bible? If things like this exist, can I trust the Bible? The more I've studied this, the deeper I've grown in my conviction, yes. It's one of those things that textual, um, the field of textual criticism, to realize that there's 20,000 translations. There's over 6,000 manuscripts. In some ways, that's overwhelming. It's like, how in the world could we possibly know what the truth is? It's actually one of those fields that the closer you look at it, the more your confidence actually goes up. If we just had one manuscript, just one, you'd actually have a lot less degree of confidence. You have no idea if the one you had is accurate or not. But the fact that we have literally thousands Again, these were handwritten copies from different places in the Roman Empire, and we can compare them side by side. It actually, the quantity of information we have, it actually increases our confidence. So if you have any questions on that, if there's something that you, like, I'm still kind of on the fence, like, I, I don't know, like, can I trust the Bible? Um, I just want to encourage you, I'd love to talk to you more. I also want to encourage you to check out, there's a book that we've, we've recommended different times called Can I Trust the Bible? It's a book by Greg Greg Gilbert. Looks like this right here. And I have five copies up here. We, we normally feature in the bookstore, but these copies are free. You go to the bookstore, you pay. You come up here, you get it for free. I'm going to set these right here. And if you're interested, and if you're going to commit to reading it within the next year, please help yourself. If these five books go and you're still interested, come let me know. I think I might have a couple extra copies in the back. But this is a really encouraging book. It's really helpful, and it might put some of your concerns to rest. I'll also say that book is really helpful. It is... Um, whether you are a Christian or whether you're exploring Christianity, I think it's good for both audiences. Um, it's good for adults, but it's within reach for a high school student. Um, so it's, it's really, really helpful. Um, I do have one more reason why I think we should conclude that the Gospel of Mark ends with verse 8. And this is going to lead us into the rest of the sermon. I know we've had to get down into the, de- into the weeds a little bit. I hope it helps you think more clearly about the Bible you hold in your hands. My final reason is I think Mark had a good reason for concluding his gospel account with verse 8. One of the main reasons why Christians have been so open to the possibility that Mark intended for there to be a different conclusion is because verse 8, it does seem a little bit awkward depending on how you read it. It does seem unexpectedly negative. I could be wrong, but I think that that is because of a faulty interpretation of this passage. I think Mark was a good writer and a good theologian, and I think he had a good reason for ending the gospel the way he did, and I want to show you. I want to go back and read the passage again. This time I want to start a little bit earlier. I'm going to read the passage, give the main points, and then very briefly I'm going to apply it with two simple reminders and we'll be done. So let's read again, but this time I want to back up. I think it's helpful for understanding what Mark is trying to accomplish. We're going to start back in chapter 15, verse 22. Look at Mark 15, verse 22. Mark 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they opened, offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, it's about middle of the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, 
wagging their heads saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They're mocking him, saying, if he really is the Messiah, if he really is who he's saying who he is, let him come down from the cross. They don't realize that the plan is not to come down from the cross. The plan is to come up from the grave. Verse 33, when the sixth hour, about noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He breathed his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last breath, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Yosef and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Here in this last few verses, as we approach the end of verse 15, there's going to be emphasis on the fact that Jesus is dead. Joseph asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse of Jesus to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Yosef, saw where he was laid. Now chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will even roll the stone for, for us from the entrance of the tomb? But looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Notice that word alarmed there. Verse 6, he said to them, the angel, the man said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The gospel, according to Mark, ends with a crescendo. A crescendo is the loudest point reached in a gradually increasing sound. It's the highest point reached in a progressive increase of intensity. 
Mark gave us this gospel account to confront us with the shocking reality of who Jesus really is. Over the course of 16 chapters now, Mark has confronted his readers with the gospel, this good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how he introduces the book in verse 1, and that's what he's explaining the whole time. He wants you to know who this Jesus is, and he wants to confront his readers. He wants to confront us. He wants to confront you with who Jesus is. In eight verses, here at the end, Mark builds the intensity. After the crisis of the crucifixion, after all the grief and the anguish and the hopelessness, Mark sets things up for a crescendo. Chapter 15 ended by saying that the two women, both of whom are named Mary, saw where Jesus was laid. They knew where the tomb was, but there was nothing that they could do that night. So Jesus was crucified on Friday night. He was buried, and there was nothing they could do. Um, they, they want, if they wanted to show honor to him by getting these spices, um, the next day was a Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath, all the stores are closed. They, they, can't, they can't get the spices, so they have to wait all day, all, all through the Sabbath. Um, they, uh, when the Sabbath is over, around 6 p.m., sunset, stores reopen. They go, they get the spices, but the, it's the sun is set. You can't go to the tomb. It's not, it's not safe. Um, it's dangerous. Uh, you don't, it's not, they can't go to the tomb. Too dark and too dangerous. So they wait till sunrise, and then they go. They go as soon as they can. The text says they went early in the morning. They're going at their very first opportunity. They're compelled by love for Jesus. You can see that they haven't even thought everything through. They're not even sure it's going to work out. You can hear like the questions that they're talking to themselves on their way. They saw where he was late. They saw that there was a big stone. These women, they know they're not that strong. They're, they're probably middle-aged. They know they're not strong enough to move the stone on their own. They're, they're probably thinking themselves even as they go. This is a fool's errand. It's hopeless. They're exhausted. Their hearts are shattered by grief. Any hope of anything good happening is long gone. They're bracing themselves for a grisly and heart-rending task. All they want to do is try to show some shred of honor to the battered, abused, stiff, cold body of the teacher that they had followed for three years. The same teacher that two days earlier they had watched the Romans brutally and horrifically torture and execute. And Mark, in his retelling of what happened, builds the intensity. Look at verse 4. The women look up. They're surprised to see that the stone has already been rolled back. That's their first clue that something unexpected was happening. They get to the tomb, they walk inside, and they encounter what appears to be a young man sitting inside. This was unexpected. They're frightened. They're alarmed. Verse 5. But the man gives them a message. Look at verse 6. He actually tells them not to be alarmed. Somehow he knows who they are. Somehow he knows why they are there. And somehow he has a message for them. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, this Jesus has risen and he doesn't need this tomb anymore. He's checked out. Man gives them instructions. They stumble out of the tomb and look at verse 8. They flee from the tomb. They're overtaken with emotion. Look at verse 8. Trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So the question is why? Why are they afraid? They're afraid because their minds cannot keep up with what they are realizing is true. A new reality is breaking into their world, one in which a man can pass through death and come out the other side alive. The details that Mark chose to include about these women here at the end of all things, the details he includes, they're intentional. 
Mark is determined to show, not just to tell, but to show the power of what has happened. He shows the power of this truth in his recorded responses of the first witnesses of the resurrection. He wants us as readers to have a realization similar to what came crashing down for these women. He wants us to collide with the fact that this is real. And I think that leads us to the main point of this passage. The main point of the passage is this. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified to death. He was buried in a tomb for three days, and he did rise to life just like he said he would. Jesus of Nazareth, as a historical fact, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified to death. He was buried in a tomb for three days, and he did rise to life just like he said he would. Jesus had promised. Chapter 14, verse 28, he had, he had told them. He, he had actually told them many times that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be buried, he was going to rise. He actually told them, after all this happens, I'm going to see you in Galilee. You must come to terms with that historical fact and all of its implications. You see, the gospel, it's news. It's good news of something that happened in real time and real space. The gospel is true history. But it's news that demands a response. Because if this is true, then everything else that Jesus said is true. If this is true, then everything else in the Bible that points to Jesus is true. If this is true, then Jesus is who he says he is. And if this is true, then Jesus is truly the only one who can defeat Satan. He is the only one who can rescue and redeem guilty sinners like us. He is God's chosen king who will reign forever in this world. He is God become man, the only one with supreme power and authority over disasters, demons, disease, and death. The most important question you will ever answer in life is this. What will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with this Jesus? The Bible says in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10 says, for with the heart one believes and is justified or declared forgiven. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you haven't done that, will you do that today? Will you turn from doing life your way and openly submit to Jesus as the king of your life? Again, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. I want to end with just two simple reminders. Number one, Jesus is alive and well. Jesus is alive and well. Never forget it. I said the most important question you ever answer is what are you going to do with Jesus? The most important thing is that you believe this truth. You believe this truth as a Christian. But I want to speak specifically to Christians here and ask this is a question I have to ask myself. Do you live with this awareness? Do you live consciously aware that Jesus right now is alive and well? Does that truth affect your mood during the day? Does it shape your emotions and your attitude? Does it do anything for your motivation and what you're living for and your hope and what you're looking forward to? Is your attitude, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I also want to share one specific application. I, I think one of the concerns that I have is that 
if a historical claim like this, even for Christians, even when it turns our world upside down, it can become on the same level as a lot of other historical facts that we've learned, and that's very dangerous, where it becomes a concept, an idea. And this is an assertion. This is a concrete reality that's going to shape, that's, that should shape our lives. For the disciples who follow Jesus, it shaped their lives. It changed their lives. It changed the direction of their lives. Because when they found that Jesus was alive, everything changed. They had a message to tell, and all of a sudden they had a lot of opposition when they wanted to tell that message. And all of them were killed for it, except for one who died lonely in exile. There would have been a lot of opportunities for them to say, you know, this is, we just made it up. It's not real. But none of them did. And the reason is because it was real. Nothing could change them, change their minds. They had gone to the place between the empty tomb and then the appearances later that there was room for no other alternative. This was real. So one author described it as this nuclear explosion, as this reality crashed into their world. This is real. They lived their lives and they went to their death saying this message because they knew it was real. As followers of Jesus, this reality should shape how we live. And actually, I actually want to apply it in one specific way. I want to apply it to how you look at the entire Bible. When you come to your Bible, come to it with the conviction, Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, I can trust everything that this book has to say about Jesus. Greg Gilbert explains it in this book I recommended earlier like this. He says, if the resurrection happened, then the rest of the fundamental superstructure of Christianity, it comes together like clockwork, including the authority of the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old. If it didn't happen, then never mind any of it. Because if our reliable biblical writers turn out to have been wrong about the resurrection, the most important thing, it's unlikely that they were right about much of anything. Because they believed these things, they rearranged their lives so they could proclaim their beliefs. They abandoned careers, they left homes, they ultimately refused to go back away from those beliefs, even as, according to tradition, they were one by one beheaded, crucified, impaled with spears, flayed, and stoned. It changed their lives. And for us, it should change our lives. So number one, remember Jesus is alive and active. Number two, remember that Jesus is alive and, alive and well, and he's alive and active. One of the things I just want to point out in the text real quickly is that the message of the angel is tell, tell the disciples, tell them that Jesus will see them in Galilee. Tell Peter, tell Peter that Jesus will see them in Galilee. There's a lot of grace in here because Peter, the last time he was mentioned, he had betrayed Jesus. He had said he never would, but then he did three times. And the women have this message to take back to Peter. And the message of Peter is, Jesus is not done with you yet. He will see you in Galilee. And I wonder why, if that's why, in one of the other gospel accounts, uh, in Matthew 28, when the women do finally tell the disciples, Peter runs to the tomb. He has to see himself. He's, he's the first person that gets there. Because he realizes that he had forsaken his Lord. But Jesus was not done with him. Jesus was active. And what's amazing is, Jesus didn't just rise from the grave, but immediately Jesus is active doing things. There's activity. He has this plan. He has this plan to meet with his disciples. He appears to them all over the place. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul rehearses the gospel, and he says, the gospel is this. Jesus died. He was buried. He raised, and then he appeared. He appeared to him. He appeared to him. Then he appeared to those 500 people over there, and if anyone wants to check on it, they can go talk to them. All these people have seen Jesus. There's this, this activity that Jesus is doing, because Jesus is doing something that he promised he would do. 
Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church and hell's gates will not stop it. See, Jesus was the best carpenter in the world. And when he says he's going to build a church, he's going to do it. He's going to do it perfectly. He's going to finish what he promises to build. And Jesus is as active now as he was then. And that should encourage us Christians. Jesus is alive and well. The tomb is empty. People saw him. He came once. He's promising to come again. And he has work that he is doing. He's doing it through us. So may this reality shape our lives. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified to death. He was buried in a tomb for three days, and he did rise.